Hey, pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your name is set apart far above and beyond any other name of this world. And we pray, Father, that your kingdom would come, that the truth and the goodness of your kingdom and the values of your kingdom would come and be among us fully in this world as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you would speak this morning and that you would, you would work in the hearts and minds of everyone here to, to hear what you want to speak, Lord. May your word be what is passed on this morning. May you allow us to enter in more deeply into life and relationship with you as we explore how to pray boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What is the biggest thing you have asked God for this week? What is the biggest thing you've asked God for this week? What are the things you believe God wants you to be asking him for? What are some scriptures, some verses, some promises from God that as you spend time with him, he is putting on your heart to be praying with him? You see, these are the questions that are going to drive and fuel our, our time this morning. We're, we're going to continue in our series that the church has been doing on, on prayer. Prayer. Uh, this series on being united, a church that is united in prayer. As individuals pray and as people come together in community to pray, this morning we're going to look at, we can never be too bold to ask God for the impossible. For those of you who I don't know, who, who don't know me, my name is Clint Trebesh, and I, uh, my, my wife and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. We work with a missions organization called The Navigators, and uh, our heart's desire is to see people grow as disciples of Jesus who can then help others grow as disciples of Jesus, people who will know, love, and follow and become like Jesus for generations to come. And this church supports us in that, and we are so thankful, and so it's my privilege to be here this morning. In 1930, a man named Dawson Trotman was deeply convicted when he read Jeremiah 33, verses 2 and 3. Jeremiah 33, 2 and 3 says, This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. He says, Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. And this man, Dawson Trotman, he saw this verse and he thought, could that be true for me? Could God tell me great and unsearchable things I don't know? Now, he was ministering with high school kids in Southern California at the time. And he recruited a group of men to join him in, in praying every morning at 5 a.m., he said, he said, I believe God wants to fulfill this scripture, Jeremiah 33, verse 3 and 4, in us. That he would tell us great and unsearchable things we do not know. Would you join me in seeking him early every morning before work and before other things in petitioning the Lord and pleading with the Lord to reveal to us what he wants? So these men started getting together and they actually would go up into the, the hills outside of Los Angeles and they, they started praying for the boys in, this, in the Sunday school group that they were working with. And they started praying for other people, neighbors that they knew. 
And it started to grow. A couple weeks in, a guy brings a, a map of the U.S. And they thought, what if we start praying for the cities up and down the West Coast and the states throughout our country? A little while later, someone brought a map of the world. What if we start praying for every nation? What if we pray this single prayer? God, use us to see your gospel impact people in every city, state, and nation that we pray for. And they prayed fervently. And they would, they would dig through the scriptures. And they would pull out scripture that they believed God was giving them to be praying. Well, not too long after that, God gave Dawson Trotman, this man, uh, a, a dream to start the ministry of the Navigators, the worldwide work of the Navigators. And my freshman year of college, I met the Navigators when a, a guy invited me to start reading the Bible with him. An answer to that prayer, decades before. And now today, there are people all over the world walking with Jesus through this. And I, and I think my story is so deeply in, intertwined in this. And what would it look like if we took God at his word and we started praying boldly that he could use us in our community, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, throughout the island, throughout the country, throughout the world. There are so many amazing, beautiful prayers throughout the scriptures. And I wish we could dig into all of them, but we're going to look specifically at the story of Joshua this morning and how God led Joshua to pray bold, and how God answered in amazing, miraculous ways. So we're going to open up to Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 through 20, this morning. Now I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this chapter, because there's a lot in here. But let me read the beginning. In Joshua 6, verses 1 through 20, starting in verse 1. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and none came in. Before I go any further, let me share some more of the context of this. So the people of Israel had been waiting for 400 years for an answered prayer. For 400 years, they believed God had promised them to give them a land, a land of abundance, a land that God said would be flowing with milk and honey which was great in contrast to uh, the desert that they had been wandering in previously. And, and for 400 years, they had this promise they were holding on to. And now in Joshua 6, they're about to see the promise beginning to be fulfilled. They have come out of slavery in Egypt. And because the generation that led them out of slavery was unfaithful and disobeyed God, God forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years didn't allow that generation to experience the promise fulfilled because of their unfaithfulness. And when that generation died off, finally they come to a place where they reach the edge of this river, the Jordan River, and God miraculously clears the waters. They come through on dry ground, much like they did at the Red Sea. And now they're standing before a city, a massive, mighty city with huge walls. And they're at the, at the edge of this city, hundreds of thousands of people, not very professionally trained in warfare. And God has said, you're going to take this land and I'm going to give the people in this land over to you because of their wickedness, because they don't know me. They don't want to know me. And so the people are standing at the edge of Jericho with these huge walls 
And the people in Jericho are afraid. They close it down. No one's coming in and out. And Joshua, the leader of the people, is praying with the Lord. He actually is speaking with God. And he's in this inter- interaction where he's, he's trying to figure out, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? God, are you going to be with us? Are you going to go before us? And in verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall, shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when the Uh, And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua gathered the people, and he tells them, here's what's going to happen. All right, now we got to stop and pause for a minute here. we got to think. Based on their own understanding... What would you say would be the most logical way to get a, a city overcome in a battle? I'm not, I have no military background, but I can imagine you would say, well, let's cut off the water supply. Let's cut off their food supply. Let's, let's do whatever we can to, to get them out. And, uh, and the people have entrusted Joshua with leadership. They, they've told Joshua, we'll follow you. We know God is with you. And here Joshua in this prayer, he's presented with the plan. And to me, I read this and I think, this is absolutely preposterous. This is a ridiculous plan. God, God's saying, I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days, and then the seventh day, walk around seven times, and then I'll bring the walls down. We've got to stop and we've got to think for a minute. This sounds ridiculous. Joshua, I can only imagine, hears this and he's thinking, I've got to go back and tell the people the plan? This is, what, this is what God wants to do? How do are they going to follow me through this? Now put yourself in that position of the people. The people thinking, we've got to march around this stinking city 13 times this week. And we have to be quiet. We can't talk. We can't say anything. Would, would you be like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not. I'm going to go do my own thing. Or would you say, all right, we're in. Game on. Me and my you know, a million other friends in Israel. We're going to do this together. A million people walking around the city. The people have entrusted Joshua's with, with Joshua's leadership. They have come alongside and said, Joshua, we know you are seeking the Lord. We know you are deeply connected with the Lord and we trust you. We're going to follow you. And no matter how big of a thing it may seem, we're in. And so they do it. The people follow Joshua. Now they've seen some miraculous things. They've seen and heard stories of how God delivered their uh, forefathers out of Egypt through the, the plagues and, and these miracle events. And they, they've heard about the Red Sea. Now keep in mind, no, one's, no one is still alive except for Joshua and one other man, Caleb, who had actually seen any of this. So it's all just they, they've heard the story from their parents. But they know God has the power to do amazing things, impossible things. They know God can do 
what exceeds their expectations. And so the people march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, here's what happens. In verse 20 of Joshua 6, so the people shouted after they had marched around the city seven times, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet and they shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured it. There is no logical reasoning behind this. There is no reason we should think, oh yeah, that's just another normal day. Walls come down. We're talking walls 40 some feet tall, four to five feet thick. It would have taken them weeks and weeks and weeks to try to chisel away at this on their own. And God breaks the walls down like that. When my family moved to Atlanta, we didn't know anyone. We've lived in Atlanta six years now, and we didn't, we didn't know anyone. And we had moved there to start a campus ministry at Georgia State University. And, and, and so we, we thought, you know what, we, we just need to, we need to spend a lot of time praying about this. We need to pray, God, would you give us people that want to know you and want to follow you? Would you give us people who do know you and who are following you that can help us? And so we said, you know what, this is actually a really amazing story. What if we did something like this? And so we mapped out downtown Atlanta, and we identified pockets of the city that we wanted to walk around and pray. And so my team joined up together, and we started praying around the city. We prayed around parts of the campus. We prayed around parts of the downtown. And we asked, God, give us people who want to know you. Give us people who want to put their trust in you. Give us people who want to help us do this. And we started seeing people come to faith as we started engaging with the gospel. We started seeing people as we're meeting, we're walking up and having conversations later on in the, in the weeks ahead, people who are saying, yeah, I really would be interested in exploring this. And God started opening doors left and right. And we started Bible discussions in dorms throughout all of campus. And it's not because of any skill or tactic that we had that was great. We didn't know what we were doing most of the time. It was because God, we believe, was faithful to answer these prayers. We decided we are going to commit all this to him, and let's see what he does. If he could bring the physical walls of Jericho down by people marching around, how could he bring the spiritual walls down in the hearts of people we're trying to meet? You see, God had given a promise, and that's where it started. And then he called the people to faithfully follow him, and he showed them how, and they obeyed. And God brought a victory unlike they'd ever seen. In Psalm 37, verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, I love the description of this that the psalmist David gives us. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. And I will give you the desires, and he, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I look at this verse, and I get often very hung up on that second part, right? How many of us like that second part? He'll give us the desires of our heart. 
This verse I have seen taken out of context over and over and over and over again. And we can easily say, well, God, I, I, just, I think God wants to give me the desires of my heart. Whatever I want. That's pretty sweet. I can, I can get on board with that. But it's in this context of what? Delighting ourselves in him. That if we long for him and desire him and pursue him, the God of the universe, the God of the impossible, and we delight ourselves in him, God wants to give us the desires of our heart. Why? Because the desires of our heart become aligned with the desires of his heart. And the desires of our heart are not based on our own selfish, self-seeking, self-absorbing dreams anymore. They're born out of the dreams he has for us and the hopes he has for us. And God wants to give us that. And in verse five, it says, commit your way to the Lord and he will act. This is what the people of Israel were doing. They made a commitment. We will follow God. They could have chosen to go their own way. They made a commitment to follow God. The generation before them did not make that commitment and died in the wilderness. May we be a generation that says we're going to be committed to following the Lord and see how he will act, see how he will bring walls down. And then in verse 6, this incredible promise, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. There's a brilliance and a beauty in what God has for us and wants us to experience as we follow him. Tomorrow, my wife and I celebrate our 12th anniversary. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah. It is. It's beautiful. When I think about 12 years he's given us, and I think of how much we need to grow in a lot of ways, my prayer is that God would continue to build a stronger foundation for what's ahead. That we would love each other more and more in what's ahead. And there are a lot of things that want to creep in, that the enemy wants to bring at us to destroy it. And unfortunately, we have done a very uh, good job, it's not good, but a good job of building our own walls. And I feel like, what if we prayed for God to break down some of the walls we've been building up? That in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships with our parents, what are the walls we can be praying around? that God wants us to be praying around, that he wants to break down? Is it a relationship with a loved one? Is it a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor? We have a neighbor that drives us crazy. And we have a neighbor that is wonderful. And I don't spend enough time praying for the neighbor that drives us crazy. And I wonder, what could it look like to start praying. God, would you break down the walls that exist between me and my neighbor? What, could it, what would it look like? God, would you break down the walls that exist between me and my coworker? We could pray around all kinds of walls. What is the Jericho God is asking you to pray around? You see, because Joshua and the army of Israel realized something 
that would set them off in an incredible trajectory. This wasn't the end goal. This was a stepping stone. God had given them an entire land, not just a city. God said, this city has to come down first, then you can start moving into the land. And there will be city after city I'm going to bring you through to overcome. And God does even more amazing things than breaking down these walls. In Joshua chapter 10, listen to this. In Joshua 10 verses 12 through 14, there is, an, there is a, a massive uh, conglomerate of armies. There's actually five armies that have gathered together and rallied together against the people of Israel. They see that the people of Israel are coming in and taking over the land. And, and these five armies come together and, and they say, we are going to put a stop to this, kill, um, kill the, the people of God. And, uh, and so Joshua and the people of Israel come into the battle. They're in the midst of this battle and they're starting to gain grounds on winning this battle, but there's a problem. The day is starting to end, and they don't want this battle to go into night. So this is what happens in chapter 10, verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And Joshua said in the sight of Israel, son, stand still at Gibeon, and Moon, in the valley of Ajalon. And guess what happened? The sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And it's recorded in another book, another secular book. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? This is not a biblical book of God. There are other people that are taking note of this. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. There is never a prayer too bold for God. Now, I was a biology major in college, and I'm thinking, this sounds preposterous. To, to pray that God would stop the sun? You know, I try to rationalize that in my thinking, and I think, what would that do for gravity? Like, would we all just start would gravity stop for a little while? Or what would happen to the tides? The moon and the sun stop. Would the what would the tides flip out? What would, what would happen? You know, like what would happen to creation if God stops the sun and the moon for a day? You know, it's like, this is all supposed to be working together in harmony and you stop it. Like this does not make any sense. And then I would try, I try to rationalize what I perceive to be impossible in my mind and think couldn't happen. Do we see Joshua going through this discourse in his mind of, well, what if, if I asked for the sun to stop, what would happen? You know, he's in the midst of a battle. There's no time. He says, we need to finish this battle today. God, would you make the sun stop? Make the moon stop? And God, who has the power over the laws of physics, the power over heaven and earth, who has spoken everything into existence, this God says, all right, sun, stop. God doesn't say, Joshua, stop playing around. Don't, this is childish. Come on. Don't, don't be ridiculous, Joshua. God doesn't come to Joshua with a rebuttal and say, sorry, I can do a lot of things, but this is just ridiculous. This is too big for me. No. God says, what else you got? I'll make the sun stop. What else you got? God was honored with Joshua's faith, his boldness, his trust, 
This church is, is doing this series based on a, a book written by a man named Mark Batterson, The Circle Maker. And I know uh, there's copies of the, the follow-up to the book in the back. And so if you, if you aren't familiar with it or haven't gotten into it, uh, let me encourage you. It's an excellent book, uh, Walking Circles and The Circle Maker. But the author, Mark Batterson, he writes this. He says, bold prayers honor God. And God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He is offended when you won't trust him with them. A bold, unceasing prayer life begins with discerning what God wants and what he wills until his sovereign will becomes your sanctified wish. Until this happens, your prayer life will be unplugged from its power source. In other words, when we are not praying in alignment with God's will as it's transforming our wishes, we're not going to be plugged in to the power of the Spirit that is driving it. When we are thinking, I am going to keep my prayer life in my minuscule little box and not trust the God of the universe with big things, God's not on board with that. He takes offense at that. In fact, Jesus gets into this with his disciples in John 16. In John 16, Jesus has been talking with his disciples and he's been telling them, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the ability to do amazing things with me. Even though Jesus is leaving, the Spirit is going to stay and help. And he's calling them out on their lack of prayer and their lack of faith and their lack of trust. And in John 16, 24, he says this. He says, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, ask, ask of me and you will receive that your joy may be full. God's desire is that we would experience joy with him. He delights in giving us joy. What are you not asking God for that you believe he wants you to? Until now, maybe you haven't been asking for something that you should be. Now, let me be clear. This is not a name it and claim it kind of philosophy, all right? That, what, what I mean by that is, this is not like, well, I just, I want to pray for this. And, all right, God, I'm going to believe you're going to do it. God in his sovereignty knows what is best for us. Just like a parent knows what is best for their child to a much greater magnitude. And God sometimes says no to our prayers, right? God answers our prayers in one of three ways. He either will say, yes, you want the sun to stop? Yes, I will do that. I want a lifetime supply of Krispy Kreme donuts. No, God says, that is going to give you a shorter life than I want for you. <laughs> My kids want to run across the street to play with their friends and their car's coming. Sure, go run across the street, you know, whatever. No, there are things God knows. He sees much more than we do and he knows much more than we do. And there are times where he says no. And there are times where he says, wait, wait. For 400 years, the people of Israel had been praying for the fulfillment of the promise to be in the land he was giving them for 400 years. You think you were praying for something for a long time. 400 years, God was saying, wait, wait, just wait. And sometimes we get impatient and we think, ah, oh, God, I just want you to do this now. In fact, um, 
When my wife and I moved to Atlanta, we moved uh, with one car from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we decided when our, when our oldest daughter was getting of school age, we need another car to get around the city, and uh, I was taking public transportation every day, and uh, as great as the MARTA system in Atlanta may or may not be, we needed another car. And so I thought, okay, well, let's pray for another car. God had previously given us two cars for free when we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. God, you could do something like this again. You know, our, our, our missionary income is not in a place right now where we can financially afford another car. We need another car. God, will you help us? All right, God, what, what will you do? So my response was to go buy a car. So now some of you may think, oh, that, that makes sense. But I was praying for a free car and then went out and bought a car with what we had. You know, and it wasn't a great car. We had problems with this car from day one to the point where the car ended its journey with us a year after we bought it. When uh, driving down a highway in North Georgia with my oldest daughter, it caught on fire and uh, needed, you know, the fire trucks to show up and close down the highway and douse our car. Uh, it, was, it was a great lesson for us to learn on God, I believed, was saying, Clint, trust me. And then I trusted in myself. God was saying, Clint, I can provide. Trust me. And I responded with, God, I'm not so sure if you really will do this, so I'm going I'm to take matters in my own hands. Well, God followed up that car inflaming moment uh, with some dear friends of ours who called us and said, hey, do you guys need a car? Actually, yeah, we do. And so they loaned us their car for a little while. Guy said, hey, I'm working in Chicago. I have, uh, I'm commuting back and forth, so I don't need my car very much. Why don't you just borrow it? A few weeks later, he quit that job. He said, Clint, can we have breakfast? I want to talk to you about the car. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to hand the keys over. And at breakfast, he said, Clint, we want to give you our car. Just have it. Wow. Praise God. Thank you so much. This was amazing. And answered a prayer. Not too long after that, we get a call from some other very dear friends who we love super uh, deeply. They called us and said, hey, we know about your car catching on fire story. Have you guys found a car? Oh yeah, we forgot to tell people that we got a new car. Yes, we actually were given one. They said, well, that's great. Can we, ask, can we give you our car too? <laughs> really? You want to give us a second free car? You know, and, and in my mind, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, well, we actually don't really need it. We got one now. And God's like, I'm giving you a free car. Take it. So we took a second free car. And God has, loves doing that. He loves doing that when we trust him. Now, there are times where some of us in here may say, yeah, but I've been praying for something for a long time, and I don't think God's answering. Anyone in here in that boat? I've been praying fervently, devotedly for something for a long time, and God is not answering. When we pray for a loved one who is sick for years, and God doesn't answer the way we want. A loved one who has cancer, and an entire church is praying, and God doesn't answer the way we want. Or maybe we're praying for a child who, is, who has gone astray from the faith that we've raised them in. And they're not coming back. 
Or maybe there's a financial situation where we need help. Maybe a foreclosure or a bankruptcy, something extreme is on the line. God, help. And it doesn't seem like there's relief. What do we do with that? Does that lead us to conclude, well, God must not care? Or does it lead us to embrace the reality that God deeply cares and he is working something even bigger that we may not see, that we may not understand? God desires our bold prayers and he will determine how he answers. A few hundred years ago, in 1806, there was a man named Samuel Mills, 18-year-old college student at Williams College in Massachusetts. Samuel Mills uh, was deeply convicted when he read a little booklet on God's desire to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth. It gave him a profound perspective on, wow, the gospel is not going to the ends of the earth. In fact, at that time in the history of the world, there was, there was no missionary movement throughout the world. And what I mean is there was, the church was so stagnant and dead at that time that it was, the church was dying at an alarming rate. And there were people all over the world who had never heard the gospel and there was no hope in sight for it. No one was going anywhere. And this guy, this Samuel Mills, 18 year old kid, he thought, we've got to pray about this. This is something wrong with this. There were no missions organizations. The church was dead about it. So he recruited a group of friends, four other friends, and they would go out in a field behind school and they would pray, God, would you do something about this? What is going on? And one afternoon, a big rainstorm came in and they were trying to run for cover. And you know, at the time there, there, there were these big haystacks. We don't really see this a whole lot now, but if you can imagine in your mind what a huge haystack would look like. And they ran and that was the only source of cover they could find and they kind of tucked in under the haystack a little bit. And this, this moment in, in the history of our church is known as the Haystack Five prayer meeting. It's like an actual documented thing where they were, there were five young college guys who at that time in a rainstorm said, we are going to commit to praying that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth for the rest of our lives. And we're going to pray that God would use us to do something about it. Those five men started the first six missions organizations in North America. They got out of college and God gave them a, a vision and a desire to see mission sending go to the ends of the earth. And it started with that prayer meeting. God, use us. Use us to impact the people you were putting on our hearts. Use us. What are the promises you believe God is giving you to be praying over? And if you don't have any, if you think, I don't know, start here. Open this up and start digging through it and searching the scriptures for promises that he wants to fulfill in us and through us. What are the promises from Scripture you believe God is giving you to pray? What is the impossible opportunity God is asking you to trust Him with? What is the Jericho God is asking you to pray around? Because the reality is this. If we are not trusting the God of the universe to fulfill and answer our prayers, 
We will live as diseased Christians, unhealthy, sick Christians, because we are not living with the health and abundance of life God wants us to. There are four keys as we close this up to seeing God answer our prayers boldly. Number one, we have to align our hearts and our minds with God's heart and mind, his will. Number two, we have to root ourselves deeply in the scriptures and promises of God. Number three, we have to look beyond what's possible to people and what's impossible to God. And number four, we have to persist and persevere in the work. If the people of Israel prayed for 400 years, we might have to persist and persevere for a while at times. So I'm going to invite the worship team, the band, to come back up here. And as they come back up, uh, I want to ask you to spend 30 seconds in prayer right now. As Billy plays a little background music for us, would you pray right now, right in your seat, right where you are, what God may be giving you and putting on your heart to ask him boldly for, knowing it's never too bold to come to him. So would you pray right now? Father, you tell us in Ephesians 3.20 that you are able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or think or imagine according to your glorious work and will among us. Father, would you meet each and every one of us with the things you want us to be seeking you for and seeking you about? God, would you band this church together that this church would seek you for each other for the own needs that we have, and also for the community around us. Father, may you burden our hearts and put on our hearts the desire to seek you boldly for impossible things, whatever they may be. May you lead us to trust. May you lead us to have faith, to live by faith, believing you are the God of the impossible. And Father, thank you for allowing us to approach you because we know through your finished work, Jesus, we can approach you. We know through your life and your death, we can approach you, Heavenly Father, and we can pray and we can ask and we can dream big with you. And so, Father, we give you the thanks and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.